uh, Restored Gospel Podcast is happy to be back with another episode of Stories of the Saints. And today's guest is a friend I actually met probably in Starbucks, although I knew of him and knew his name. Uh, we visit the same local one there, and uh, we began talking over the past year, some things going on in the church, and got to know him. I have Patrick McKay Sr., is that right, here today. And so welcome, Patrick. Say hello. Thank you, Michael. Uh, glad to be with you. Uh, in talking with Patrick, I became aware that he had written a book recently called Healing the Breach. Um, what's the full title, Patrick? Healing the Breach, Mormonism, Metaphors, and the Pieces of the Puzzle. Perfect. And that's available on uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, I believe, online, the actual physical book. And then I know I have the Kindle version, right? Right. Available as well. So we'll get into that, and we'll have a link for that book that um, you can click on and buy. But uh, Patrick and I don't know each other um, super well, um, more on a, just a real uh, surface-level basis. And I kind of wanted to keep it that way until this interview today is so that we could just uh, bring out in conversation as he shares his testimony of of Jesus. So, Patrick, were you born into the, the church Per se. Yes, I was raised in the reorganized church. I grew up in California. My mom was a lifetime member. My father was a convert when I was in high school. He came from Catholicism. He came from Catholicism. How did that? How did he come to know the restoration, the restore gospel? Well, of course, he was in, uh, exposed to it because of my mom and uh-huh. taking us to church. But he read the Book of Mormon, and that's what converted him to the restored gospel. Okay. Um. And then how did you get to the Independence area from California? Well, I, uh, I went to high school in California, and then my senior year, I went to a senior high camp in, uh, in Happy Valley, California, and Roy Cheville was the guest minister that year. Okay. And his testimony really inspired me, and I changed course and decided not to go to the local junior college, but I enrolled at Graceland College. And while I was at Graceland, I had quite an experience where I was introduced to the Book of Mormon really for the first time. Although it had been in my life, it had been part of our family, I had never read the book. Okay. What, what, um, what, what was that experience like when you read it? Uh, what, what, what changed for you? Well, I've heard of Jesus my whole life, as many people had. But once I read the Book of Mormon, I met someone I'd heard about but had never truly met before. I met Jesus Christ. Mm. And he changed my life. And really, Mike, I believe in the Bible because I have a testimony of the Book of Mormon. Okay. What, um, what would you say to people uh, as far as finding Jesus in the Book of Mormon that maybe um, know of the book and are opposed to it or think it's extra scripture or it's anti-Jesus? Well, you know, the Bible says, I think there's an acid test that uh, the apostle gives He said, Apostle John, he says, every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And of course, in the Book of Mormon, we have 2,500 witnesses who came forth and touched the wounds in his hands and in his side and his feet and knew that he was Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So really, when people outside the Restoration question our belief in the Book of Mormon, I don't really think they have as much a problem with the Book of Mormon as they have with their own Bible. Because the Bible says this is how you can know every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Okay. That's uh, the Book of Mormon is probably my favorite scripture, book of scripture, at least right now. Uh, I've been reading it a lot, especially in the last couple of years with events that have happened in the church and things. Um, But it sure, I think, presents Christ in a very complete and simple way. Um, when you were at Graceland, um, did you have any other experiences with the Lord or, um, uh, how did you, so you're married, is that correct? Mm -hmm. Okay. Did you meet your wife at Graceland or? No, I met her here at Independence uh, after I graduated, but back to Graceland, I was, uh, I played basketball. I was a physical education major, spent a lot of time in the athletic department and I got acquainted with a young man named Rudy Leitzinger, okay. who I liked because Rudy was an athlete. And he would often ask me, have you ever read the Book of Mormon? And, of course, I, I never had. 
And now I'm in my sophomore year of college, and he continues to ask me, have you read this book? Have you read this book? So that summer, between my sophomore and junior year, I went home and read the Book of Mormon. And that's how my life was set on a different trajectory than ever before. Following Graceland and graduation, I moved to Independence, and it was here in Independence that I met my wife. And it's an interesting story, Mike. I, I grew up in California. Mm-hmm. My wife grew up in Florida. We met here at the campus in Independence. They were Young people were playing volleyball. And I, I met her, got her phone number, began <laughs> to contact her. And, of course, naturally she fell in love with me. You know. <laughs> but anyway, uh, after we were married, we discovered my mother and her grandmother had some lengthy conversations. And we realized that my maternal grandmother and Joy's maternal grandmother grew up in the same community in Saskatchewan, Canada. Oh, Way- wow. In Weyburn. Yeah. And my grandmother was a little older than Joy's grandmother, but when my grandmother was 12 years old, her mother passed away, and she had several siblings and other people in the community. It was a Lutheran community. They all helped uh, my grandmother's family, and one of those families was Joy's grandmother's family. And I had a great uncle, and Joy had a great uncle, and they were best friends into their 90s. (laughs) <laughs> the gospel came into that community, and Joy's grandmother married a man named Joe Neal, and she embraced the gospel and and eventually gathered to independence. My grandmother married, and her hus- she wanted to join the church, but her husband was opposed. And later she moved to the West Coast, uh, right where my mother and my aunt were raised, and they were raised in the church there in Portland, Oregon. Okay. That's where I was born. And then later, Joy and I meet in Independence and discover that there was a divine destiny that had (laughs) shaped our lives long before we knew each other. God was in the process of putting our lives together, and it's just kind of remarkable. That that is amazing. Um, We've got some saints and good friends that live in, well, not in Portland, but Salem, Oregon, and the branch up there, and there's a good group of saints up there today. so, so you moved? Did you move to Independence right after Graceland, or shortly after then? I graduated and just moved down to Independence. Okay, mm-hmm. okay, from California, and you've resided here since then. Yep. Yeah, my mom and dad met at Graceland as well, and of course that's why I'm here. So he was from uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico, and she was from Ohio. So we we have ended up in Independence all because of our beliefs in the church. So. Tell me, tell me the, mm, tell me about writing your book and what um, what started that. What uh, what led to that? Well, several years ago, I was reading in section one of the Doctrine and Covenants, and you're familiar with it, as most of your listeners might be. He refers to the church as the only true and living church on the face of the earth, with which I, the Lord, am well pleased, speaking to the church collectively and not individually. And at that moment, I paused, I shut my book, and I thought, what does that mean, speaking to the church collectively and not individually? And of course, I thought, well, he means speaking to all the members and not just one individual. And a lot of thoughts went through my mind as I prayed about it, as I thought about it, I began to expand my appreciation or understanding of the Latter-day work. And I wondered about the other portions of the Restoration that we're familiar with, the Church of Jesus Christ Bickertonite, the Church of Christ Temple Lot, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormon Church, the Church of Jesus Christ with the Elijah Message, uh, the Church of Jesus Christ Strangite, uh, the Restored Church, which came out of the Elijah Message. There's been a lot of factualizing out of the Restored Church. And so as a result of that, Mike, I began to reach out to some of these groups, contacted them, uh, went and met with them, uh, worshiped with them, I was invited to speak in their churches, went to Utah, was invited to speak at their firesides. Eventually, I was invited to speak to the ancient history and church history department professors to bear my testimony, why I belonged to the reorganized church, what I saw as our destiny down the road. I remember telling them if you're on a two-lane highway and you look far enough down the road, you only see one lane. And I testified to them that I believe that was the divine destiny of the restoration. 
that God intended to sew his people back together. I know there are differences, and some are significant, but we spend so much time talking about what our differences are instead of considering what it is we have in common. And there's a lot we have in common. We believe in uh, the restored gospel. We believe in the divine authenticity of the Book of Mormon. We believe in an intercessory priesthood that was restored. We believe in the restoration of the house of Israel. We believe in a holy city. We believe in angelic visitations. All of these things are common threads that are woven among all parts of the restoration. And yet so often we simply magnify our differences, and that has kept us separate. And as we look at the conditions in the world, if we add up all the believers in the restoration, uh, there might be 17 million people that believe or, or assent to a belief in the Book of Mormon. That doesn't even register out of 7.5 billion people in the world. Mm. And so I believe we have more in common than we have difference. And so that's what persuaded me to begin looking at the other groups. And I thought, you know, I should write a book cataloging the things I've learned, the experiences I've had, the individuals I've met, and the way their lives have been touched in very similar ways to those of us that grew up in the reorganized church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We assume, Mike, I suppose because God has blessed us, we've seen our sick healed, we've been spoken to in prophecy, we've heard of angelic visitations, we know we're the true church because we have these confirming evidences. And yet I discovered that in other parts of the Restoration, they have similar experiences and they believe they are the true church. So I've come to believe, based on my understanding of section one that has grown over time, that the Lord has blessed the church collectively and has sustained the various parts of the restoration with the express purpose to one day weave us back together. You know, it was Nephi who said that I can liken all Scripture unto us when he was talking to Laman and Lemuel, and they didn't understand their father's dream. Well, in the parable of Zenos in the book of Jacob, it speaks of these several plantings that were taken from the house of Israel and put in various parts of the globe, some in a good spot of ground, some in a poor spot, some in even a poor spot, and some in a choice spot. And yet, all of these different branches bore fruit. And I believe that if we can apply that to the house of Israel, we can also overlay that with the saints of the Restoration. And God wants to preserve his fruit, which are his people. And so I believe we'll be crafted back into the mother tree, if you like, and the day will come when we will see eye to eye. In the meantime, I believe it's time to start working, laboring shoulder to shoulder with the anticipation that the day would come when we would see eye to eye. I hope I remember. I want to get back to that labor, laboring shoulder to shoulder, so remind me if I don't circle back. But I wanted to ask you, what, what time period was it when you were uh, going to these different um, churches, um, you know, you, you said even out to Utah to talk to the LDS. About what time was that? Was that? All of this happened about 10 years ago. Okay. And it's been an unfolding dynamic ever since then. Okay. How were you received, like, for instance, in uh, Utah? What did they, how, what was their response to you? Was it um, an arrogance? Was it a, uh, a willingness to listen? Uh, you know, what was it? It was really interesting. A lot of the professors who were very well educated, um, they were really not very familiar with our branch of the restoration. And so they were anxious to learn. They were anxious to hear. Uh, out of this experience, we forged a friendship with some of the professors there in the ancient history department. And from that time forward, we have produced a Book of Mormon symposium in concert with them. And each year they provide four speakers and we provide four speakers from other parts of the restoration. And we magnify the book and those who believe in it. We don't really talk about our differences. We try to gather around our commonalities. And it's been a very enriching experience. It's held here in Independence. It's a two-night event. Uh, one night is at the LDS Stake Center. The other night is at some other facility that we try and rent. And we've been in several locations and uh, all of those have been efficacious in drawing our saints together. Are they uh, pretty well? Well, I, 
<laughs> I drove by, I think, the last one I was going to go in. The parking lot was uh, just full at the um, LDS church here in town. Are they pretty well attended, been pretty well attended? Yeah, we've had upwards to 400 people in the assembly, and that's a pretty good turnout. Yeah. We'd like to do better, but uh, it has been very uh, – it's it's kind of a thing that grows, and, mm-hmm. and people hear about it, and others inquire and want to come. And so uh, it's been a been a good experience. It's been a good marriage uh, and nobody has to feel like their particular branch of the restoration is being challenged or it's not a safe environment, uh, that you have to leave where you belong. Um, that just isn't the venue. It's simply coming together on what we agree on. Okay. I was going to ask you, I, I, uh, I was never really, uh, I was never really aware of the term, this ecumenical term, um, until recently. And I started studying it a little bit in the Protestant world, the evangelical world. Uh, there's a lot of, um, well, there is, uh, different camps in that mainstream area of religion, uh, people coming together, Protestants and Catholics and trying to work together. And then there's people that say, no, you can't uh, unite. Well, basically they say, you know, uniting with a false truth is just false unity, that unity has to be based on on truth. And so circling back to kind of what you said with shoulder to shoulder, and I don't I don't I don't know where I'm at with this crap. I think I'm like a lot of people. Um, you know, I see both sides of the issue, and that's why I thought today would be great because uh, if our listeners don't know, I think you come from the um JCRB side, is that right? Correct. Of the restoration. I go to a independent restoration branch. Um, I guess that's how we would call ourselves, Coburn Road Restoration Branch. Um, and so I know there's a lot of feelings about these things, and I wanted to get into them today and put them on the table and just talk about them because I don't think that it's anything we should be afraid of. The Lord is well aware of our situation and where we're at, and he knows our hearts, whether we're longing for him or not. And so uh, I'm curious and, and looking forward to this. What what do you say uh, to people about working shoulder to shoulder that, well, you know, how do we find common ground with a group of people that have, you know, partaken in, in a history of so that's so egregious against the Lord with polygamy and, um, you know, blood atonement and things like that. Where I speak to that. Okay, that's a good that's a good way to segue into this, Mike. First of all, the term ecumenism or the ecumenical movement mm-hmm. has had kind of a distasteful taste for members of the reorganized church. Right. Uh, in the 70s, 60s, 70s, and with rising thrust thereafter, there was an effort for the reorganized church, which then morphed into the community of Christ, to blend itself with more progressive churches. And from that vantage point, we have looked upon ecumenism in a negative light. And I understand that, but I also believe that within the Restoration, we're not, you know, we're not Catholic and we're not Protestant. Um, In the tent of evangelicalism, there are different branches of Christianity that assent to an evangelical concept. And they're all welcome under that same tent. They confess Jesus is Lord. They believe the Bible is the inerrant word of God. And so they find commonality, even though a Baptist may be different than a Presbyterian or a Pentecostal, for instance. In the Restoration, we find that to be so difficult because everyone in the Restoration is persuaded to this idea that we're the one true church. And consequently, our little branch of the Restoration, there's a group here in Independence called the Church of Jesus Christ Colorites. Mm-hmm. They have 12 members worldwide, and they believe they're the one true church. Little little white church about, what, three blocks south of the temple or yeah. the temple lot? On yeah. Cottage. And mm-hmm. they're, they're really terrific people. I've met with them. They, they have a wonderful faith in the Latter-day work. And they're not dissimilar from the Mormons or the Hedrickites or the Bictonites or the Josephites, all believing they're the one true church. Twelve people, twelve members. Mm-hmm. Wow. And and so, Mike, the Latter-day Revelation, section 38, there's an ominous scripture that's haunting to me. He says, be one, and if you're not one, you're not mine. You know, you can say, well, the Mormon church has practiced things that we would consider out of bounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, but today, the Mormon Church is uh, moved away from some of those more egregious practices. 
That doesn't mean that we would agree with everything that they espouse, nor do they agree with everything that we espouse. But there is an awful lot that we agree on, and that's what I'm suggesting, that we come together on what we agree on, not on what we disagree on. You know, as I grew up in the reorganized church in California in high school, I had friends that were Mormons, but I kept my distance because I was taught, I was raised in the one true church. And I remember um, meeting some of these friends and thinking they were pretty nice people, but obviously they were in the false church. And, you know, as a result, I missed a lot of opportunities to, to interact with good kids Uh, We have a lot easier time to interact with a good Baptist or a good Methodist than we do with a good Latter-day Saint, and I'm not sure why that is, but we feel challenged by it. And I think it's time that we try to set that aside and and come together on those things that we do agree on. When my kids were in high school, they had uh, an experience every morning. It was called Meet at the Flag. Mm -hmm. And Christian kids from Fort Osage High School would gather around the flag and a variety of faiths, and they would take a few minutes and pray and ask God to bless them, watch over them at school, bless the school, and have safety for everyone. Well, that was an ecumenical endeavor, but it really didn't deal with doctrine. Right. It came together on those things that they shared in common. You know, Mike, in a marriage, uh, couples don't always agree. And if all we do is magnify our differences— we're probably going to have marital difficulties. Mm-hmm. But if we try to come together on what we agree on, maybe in time we'll be able to deal with the differences that confront us. I believe that's true of the restoration. I like that. I like I like talking with you about this. It's very much needed. I, I find it um, genuinely interesting. I want to uh, I want to take the the subject of authority, priesthood authority, and just let's set this aside for a second, but I make sure I don't forget that. I, I forgot my pen. I usually take notes through the uh, throughout the uh, episode so that I can remember where to go back. So I want to talk about that in coming together for a second, but I wanted to ask you, so this past year, um, we had a knock on our door, and this hasn't happened for a while. There was two uh, LDS sisters there, and they asked if we uh, of course, we told them we believed in the Book of Mormon. But um, at the moment, I thought, you know, I understand what they do. They go out and they leave their homes. And I thought, if we can be a nice place for them to come in the evening and have dinner, I wanted to invite them in. And so we, you know, I told them right away, I said, I'm not interested in joining your church. That's that's not going to happen. I've been down that road, you know, several times with your people. And I probably know more than what most people do about your church and our church. But, you know, if you want a place to come for dinner and we can talk about the Lord, then come. But I learned uh, several weeks into that that that's that's not part of their agenda at all. And so after, uh, I don't know, four or five meetings, maybe six, uh, it was at the point where, you know, they're they're under pressure to either have a commitment of some sort or have the people they're visiting with move along or they they need to move along. And they ended up, uh, we had a pretty emotional meeting and and there were tears shed, not by me, but by them. They... uh, they really feel if you're not a part of their church that um, that you're not you know your your eternal life is going to be different than what theirs is and I felt bad for them feeling that way because I don't feel that way about them that's not who the Savior is to me but I felt bad that they felt that for us um, and we main, we maintain contact with them I got a note today one of them's back in town and and wants to get together and have me meet her family so it was good but it's sad when it comes to that so. They have a much different view of Jesus, of who he is, you know, in God. So how do we, how do you come together and avoid that topic when it comes to worship, I guess? Well, you know, there are challenges sure. anytime you have two people with different perspectives. I have simply tried to, in my relationships, gather around the things that we have in common. And the Jesus that we find in the Book of Mormon is the Jesus that that I express, that I talk about, mm-hmm. that I share with them. You know, the Book of Mormon is pretty clear. We talk of Christ, we preach of Christ, we prophesy of Christ. There is a God and he is Christ. Uh, he's the keeper of the gate. He's the Holy One of Israel. Um, all throughout the Book of Mormon, nearly every page offers some witness of the divine authenticity of our Lord. And I think that the Mormons, like the RLDS folks or other parts of the Restoration, they're all a product of the way they were raised. 
we've all been taught we're the true church. They've been taught they're the true church. And you would believe that they would have to be baptized before you could consider them to be truly a part of the body of Christ. And they feel the same way about us. And I think that it's difficult, Mike, and this is something that our people need to get their hands around. It's difficult to prove the negative. How can you prove someone doesn't have authority? How can you prove someone doesn't have faith? How can you prove that someone hasn't had an experience or an encounter with the Holy Spirit and that Jesus Christ has changed their life? It's difficult, and those who make that claim, they're the ones who have to prove the negative. And so I don't go down that route. I don't try to prove that I'm right and they're wrong. I try to bear testimony of what I believe to be true and try to walk as far with them as I can. I believe that, for instance, during World War II, the British fought the Germans. What if 20 years before that conflict broke out, all the babies born to the Germans were swapped with the babies that were born to the British? The Germans would be fighting for the British, and the British would be fighting for the Germans. It's all how we teach history. A good, traditional, fundamental, RLDS active person that was raised in a good, traditional, fundamental Mormon home would think like a Mormon, and that Mormon would think like an RLDS person. It's all how we teach history. So I believe that friendships unite. It was the brother of Jared. He prayed for his friends that God would not confound their languages. King Benjamin called his people my friends. Jesus says, I call you my friends. So friendship is a grand principle of Mormonism in the large scope, and I think we should build friendships, build relationships, and let God do the heavy lifting. There's going to be a time, Mike, it's already predicted, and it's oftentimes misunderstood in the Book of Mormon. People say, well, the day will come when there'll just be two churches, the Church of the Lamb of God and the Church of the Devil. But that's really not what it says. It says there are, save two churches only, the Church of the Lamb and the church of the devil. His ancient covenant people are scattered all over the earth. They're his. And in time, he's going to weave us back together. But if we magnify our differences, it's going to be much more difficult to take that next step. I'm not suggesting anybody embrace false doctrine or false beliefs Mm -hmm. or become embedded with things that we just don't believe are right. I'm not suggesting that in any way, shape, or form. Neither does my book postulate that. It simply proffers the idea that we have more in common, build upon our commonalities, and let God eventually remove those obstacles that offend and weave us back together. You know, if we look at a tapestry, it might be on the backside, it might look all knotted, frayed, and crisscrossed, and not very pretty. But if we could turn it over, and we could see what the master artist has really done. It's quite beautiful. And I believe God is in the process of weaving the saints together, but we've only looked at the backside of the tapestry and haven't really looked at the other side. But as I've labored among other parts of the restoration, I've seen the expression of Jesus Christ. I've seen the fruit. I've seen the evidences. I met a gal in the Church of Jesus Christ, Bickertonite. They're headquartered in Monongahela, Pennsylvania. She's a wonderful sister. Uh, 42 years ago, she had an experience where a song was given to her. Every word and every note, she wrote the words down, but she didn't know what to do with the music. The next day, it happened to her again, and she thought, I can't tell anybody. That's like saying I saw an angel, and then the next day, tell someone I saw him again. No one would believe me. After she received nine songs, one of her friends says, well, you have a gift. It had never dawned on her. Well, she's received 239 hymns, every word, every note. And they're called the Songs of Zion. We talk about believing in Jesus Christ. We talk about believing in Zion. This is a, an epic testimony woven into those songs. It's, they're, they're really beautiful. The Latter-day theme is what's evidenced in all of these songs that she's received. And she's not musical. She doesn't play an instrument. She doesn't read music. She's not a writer, and yet she's received all of these prophetic and poetic songs, and they've kept the dream of Zion alive among the Church of Jesus Christ. 
And she's offered those songs to some of us. And so we have rejoiced. I could tell you some experiences about how we receive those if you're interested, but I don't want to get too far afield no, from where well, you're going. That's, that's fine. Go ahead. I'm, I'm curious about this. Well, but I, I want to just say what you just said. I want to. I want that to not go over the heads of our listeners or myself. You said um, if we, you know, the Germans and the, it, it, you know, if I was born LDS in Utah and they were born RLDS in Bradner, Ohio, you know, small little town of fifteen hundred people. We would be different, and I've often looked at that, Patrick, and I thought, I've thought about that, and I thought, would I, would I, um, just because I'm me, you know, find the doctrine and the error of their ways? Because I see, I see how they take certain scriptures and believe them, you know, across the board, and they they've learned to believe them that way. That's that's something that um, I think our pride would say, well, no, I'm just I'm just right, you know, and I am in the true church, but. Boy, I, I hope each of us can have some grace in that area and say, you know, if I was born to different parents, um, I very likely would be believing that as well. And that's, we shouldn't put too much on our own, you know, independence because we are a product of where we're raised and in the mentors in our lives. So anyway, so go ahead. Tell me, I'm interested about the sisters. Tell me about these. Well, I went to California and my brother Jim and I, we were doing some missionary work there and, and we ran into the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, we were invited to come to prayer service and bear our testimony. And so we thought all day, what would we say to this group of people? We had never penetrated this branch of the restoration and so when we got to church, it was a, a Wednesday night. It was fairly casual. They were singing some songs, and the gentleman that we had met invited us to come up, and he said, I've asked each of these men to bear their testimony, but we're also going to ask them both to preach. <laughs> and so <laughs> wow. that was kind of a, a, a new experience for us. So and they were very open to that. They were that, open. Wouldn't hope it, that wouldn't happen in our branch. <laughs> no, but it happened there. And yeah. as a result of that, we were asked to come the following Sunday and in their church, they serve the sacrament weekly, much mm-hmm. like the LDS folks do. And we typically serve it once a month. And I wouldn't personally be up front in a service if I didn't feel I could partake of the sacrament. I hadn't made things right with the Lord or I was at aught with a brother or sister. I wouldn't serve until I had rectified that or attempted to. And I was up front and I was asked to speak a little later in the service, but they had a sacrament service. And, of course, the gentleman up front came by, and and I didn't partake. He shook my hand, and he didn't serve me. He knew he wasn't intending to serve me, but he also wasn't intending to offend me. Mm. I wouldn't have been offended, but—and then I got up and spoke. And so I found that to be a a really enriching kind of experience, setting this whole thing in motion. And I heard a song while I was there. It was called The Latter-day Theme, The Better Part of a Lifetime in Defense of a Dream— looking very intently for the Latter-day theme, searching every horizon, certain one day to see all the beauties of Zion, they're unfolding to me. And I felt that that was a spiritually inclined song. I felt like there was really something to it. And it sparked my imagination. And so over a period of time, I wanted to meet the sister that had received that song. I didn't know her, didn't know anything else about her. Uh, My brother Jim and I made a trip to uh, the Pittsburgh area. They live in a little town called Imperial. And we spent four days in their home. And then Jim and I went away on a trip and my wife came back home. While we were there, I asked this sister, her name is Arlene Buffington, could we have those songs in our branch? And she said, well, Patrick, uh, I've not given those songs to anybody. She said, even my church doesn't have the copyright. And I said, well, that's okay. Can we have them? And she says, well, you're not listening. And I said, well, Arlene, I'd like to have those songs. I was persistent. And she said, well, all I can do, Patrick, is pray about it. Well, Joy went home, and Jim and I went away for two weeks, but we were going to come back and stay with her a night before we flew home because they live by the Pittsburgh airport. And the night before we returned back, Arlene testified that she sat up in bed put her feet on the floor about 11 o'clock at night, and a song fell down on her. And so the next morning she got up and she, she wrote the words down and she shared the words with her husband and her daughter. 
And the name of the song was Lend the Weary Ones a Song. As you labor in the vineyard, striving daily, every hour with compassion, make a difference. Pull another from the fire. Repair the breach. Restore the pathways. Where our fathers walked so long, O loose the bands, the heavy burdens, and lend the weary ones a song. And she said, that's the answer to my prayer. I'm going to give those songs to Patrick and Jim as they requested. Well, then she noticed my wife had left a note, and she hadn't seen it. It was in her kitchen, and she went, and she looked at it, and she was amazed because Joy had, it was a little note thanking her for her hospitality, having us in her home, the wonderful time we had. And Joy's concluding line in her little note was, this trip has been a boon to my weary soul. Wow. Lend the weary ones a song. <laughs> and so... That was song number 210. She's received 30 songs since, and she's been receiving these for a 42-year period. And they're really beautiful. Mm. That's a beautiful testimony. And that's the Church of Jesus Christ. Uh, what, what, what branch? What well, are... they're the Church of Jesus Christ. That's their official name. They're mm-hmm. headquartered in Monongahela, Pennsylvania. Okay, yeah. We refer to them as Bickertonites, Bickertonites yeah. because William Bickerton took up the lead of their work after the death of Sidney, or after the, the leaving of Sidney Rigdon from the movement. And anyway, they're not, not because they bicker. They don't bicker any more than we do. <laughs> we could be called Bickertonites, you know. Yeah. Uh, that's just the name. We're Josephites, they're Brighamites, they're Bickertonites, right, they're right. Hedrickites, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think I um, attended one of their uh, branches for a service, Sunday service. Uh, one of my friends in Ohio, his dad was dating someone from that church, and I believe they have a branch somewhere around the Cleveland, Kirtland area. They have a lot of branches in that area. Yeah, so we, we attended a service there, and it was much like one of our services, you know, different hymn book. But, um, well, that's, uh, that's a beautiful testimony of the Lord working, it sounds like, uh, in miraculous ways with them. Um, I... Uh, I read something very neat this morning. I want to I want to close with that, and we've got more time. We don't need to close yet, so, but um, I'm thinking how to segue into that. I, I was going to ask you, I wanted to circle back to authority, and I wanted to ask you, you said a phrase that was really, I, I really like it. You said, let the Lord do the heavy lifting. And I've, I've thought about that a lot, never with those terms, but um, we spend a lot of time thinking about you know who has priesthood authority and who can we serve the sacrament to and and I think these are these are important questions they're in nature of our history that they come up repeatedly but I've wondered in that context sometimes it's like what does God expect from us does he expect us to try to figure out the impossible when this puzzle has just kind of fallen apart in so many ways or does he expect us to be charitable to one another and say lord we don't know so we're going to we're going to act in charity, or is there part of our brain that just thinks, boy, if we serve the sacrament to someone and they weren't really baptized by someone with authority, you know, that's going to condemn them and, and me as a priesthood member and our whole congregation, and the Lord's going to withdraw his favor from us. I just, I wonder if you take that thought process all the way out, like, why is it a big deal? And I imagine it comes from wanting to do right, you know, wanting not to offend the Lord and protect his body, but at some point, we it's like he knows where we're at, right? He knows the condition we've created for ourselves. So how much uh, wisdom does he expect us to have, you know? All that to say, when you say come together and worship uh, or, or work side by side in as much as, uh, you know, we can agree upon things, I would say, so to what, to what end is that? Um, the things that keep us apart really come down to pride, right? I think I know what's right. They think they know what's right. But the Lord has his will and his rightness. So is there a um, benefit from just coming together and worshiping and leaving so much on the side and not addressing it? Well, I think that there are obstacles, as, as we mentioned earlier, and I don't think that we should run ahead of what our tradition has taught us. It would be unwise for members of our church to serve the sacrament to other parts of the Restoration unless our church had had some kind of confirmation that that was wise and the proper thing to do. The thing, Mike, is we have to remember that priesthood authority was restored in the days of Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith was martyred. The church fractured. It went in various directions. 
do you really think all the priesthood died because they went in a different direction? I'm not convinced that that's true. Now, we could say, well, we have more light and truth than this group, or this group has more light and truth than this group. This church is in more darkness than this church. We can make any kind of assumption we want. But I'll give you part of our own history. Jason Briggs was an elder in the church. At the death of Joseph, he was in a little group, and he raised up a branch called the Yellowstone Branch. He and Zenas Gurley. In 1846, both he and Gurley were ordained under the hands of James J. Strang. One was ordained a senior president of 70. That would would have been um, um, Gurley, excuse Mm -hmm. me. And Jason Briggs was ordained a high priest. At the formation of the reorganization in 1853, Jason Briggs was chosen to preside over that formation of the church. And there was a committee of three that chose seven and they were to be ordained apostles. And they presided over the church uh, in the interim until young Joseph came. They already knew that young Joseph would come. As early as 1851, they had a testimony that Joseph, the son of Joseph, would come and lead the church. But they didn't wait for him to come. In 1853, they ordained seven men apostles. Jason Briggs was the first ordained, and he in turn ordained the next six. And he was chosen to preside on the strength of his ordination he'd received under the ordination of James J. Strang. Now, in the reorganization, we've not accepted the Strang movement as being authentic. We've not believed that that was a a legitimate, that he was a legitimate successor of Joseph Smith. And yet, he was ordained to the office of high priest by Hiram Smith while Hiram was alive. Was he able to transfer that priesthood? We have no account anywhere in our history where Jason Briggs was reordained or he had to lay that priesthood down, nor was that true of Zenos Gurley. And I believe that at the death of Joseph, the church fractured and it went in many directions, much like the parable of Zenos. And God has allowed the restoration to continue in these various settings. It doesn't mean that, well, we have to join one of them. It simply means this is where he's planted us. This is our testimony. We should be faithful to it. But in time, God will make all these things clear. But instead, we want to fight and we want to quarrel and we want to argue and we want to strive for the mastery, which the Apostle Paul suggests is not a very good way to operate. So I'm not suggesting, Mike, that anybody jump ship, join another church, abandon what we've been taught. Mm-hmm. Uh, perhaps we stand in the greater light, but the honest truth is, which group has redeemed Zion? Which group has gathered Israel? Which restoration church has witnessed the fall of Babylon? I believe that we're all undone. And I believe, like my book suggests, we're all a piece of the puzzle. You've put a puzzle together, I'm sure, as a family or as a youngster. And how frustrating it is when you're, you're three or four parts away and the dog ate one of the pieces, it fell into the couch, you've lost it, you can't complete the puzzle. I believe that that we think presently the only parts of the puzzle are those which are in our hands, but I believe that all of these parts are necessary or requisite for God to use to fully empower his church to build the holy city. So unique gifts, traits, characteristics— and expressions of the restored gospel have developed in these different parts of the restoration. And when he weaves us back together, we're going to be a richer, more dynamic, more powerful witness of Jesus Christ and his latter-day message. Um, you talked about some of the unique things that we have in the restoration, and of course one of those you mentioned was a restored priesthood. We believe that it was restored by the hands of the angel um, on Joseph and uh, both the Melchizedek and the Aaronic. Um, I guess my question is, so this is bringing it down, and, and maybe there is no good answer to this, but um, this actually came up recently in a meeting I was in. But um, I think what it comes down to, so Patrick, you know, I was going to the Joint Conference of Branches uh, the first couple years, you know, when we were meeting at Waldo. Um, Oh, gosh, it's been a decade ago at least. Um, 
And then from that, there came another group called the the joint, you know, the JCRB, who ordained. Um, well, let's say, uh, what what office are you ordained to in the JCRB? Apostle. Okay, apostle. So, if someone, this is what I just asked a question. Um, I didn't join the JCRB. I didn't think it was, um, I guess, at the time being led of God or the movement was, you know, I know people had testimonies. That doesn't bear anything on how I feel about you. Is it a sin? And this is what it comes down to. If someone believes that they have a testimony from the Lord, that they are following his will to the best of their discernment, to the best of their ability, we, I guess we put that in a category of sin and then say, no, you can't partake of the sacrament at our church because we feel you have somehow either desecrated the priesthood or, and, and what it really comes down to, and I just asked the question, is that a sin? And I, I don't know that I'm willing to say it is because in, in my understanding on any given day of things like life after death or eternal life, uh, I can see things completely different than other people but it's to the best of my ability of where I'm at. And if I'm trying to follow God with all of my heart um, and really believe it, and I don't see anything concrete that says this is contrary to the scriptures that I've given you, um, how can I say that's a sin? And so how do you feel about that? Um, so if I, uh, if I came to your church on a Sunday, uh, the congregation you go to, and it was a sacrament Sunday, would uh, would I be able to partake of a sacrament if I was willing? Like, of course you would. Okay. And I I would probably say if you came to our church, I don't know. I don't know. We're, we're you know, we're always, this, this circles back around. I'm not saying anything people don't know. I don't know if you would or not. Would you, I, I'm sure you would probably feel comfortable partaking there if you were allowed to. Is that right? Of course. Yes. Okay. So what do you say to that? Um, people would say, Patrick, uh, you've accepted this call in your life, and uh, because of that, uh, you've desecrated the priesthood, or you've lost your—well, here, here's what it comes down to, not even priesthood. You've lost your membership in the body of Christ for doing that. Do you feel that's a legitimate thing to say? Well, of course, I don't agree <laughs> with that, but let's analyze that sure. a little bit. Um, if a person is baptized by one having authority, he's entered into a covenant— we consider that to be an authoritative baptism. Let's take that further, and let's take an individual who's met that requirement and drifted into the world, maybe got involved in things that were wrong or immoral or false, and years later he had a change of course and he came back to church. We wouldn't require him to be rebaptized if he's repented and he reaches forth his hand as a minister, I want to know, have you been baptized? So we're to uh, make sure that that's the case. The individual is to examine himself to make sure he's in a position that he can reach forth his hand. So baptism is one thing. Authority is something else. The early reorganization had this same issue where people that had been in the various fractions that came out of the death of Joseph found their way into the reorganization. And their baptisms were not necessarily questioned. Some questioned whether they had authority. And the position of the reorganization was no ordination that you received after the that you received in the original church can add to or take away from the authority that you received. So that was the position of the reorganization for many, many years. Okay. So if you were called to the office of priest and then you went to the straying church and were called to the office of elder, that doesn't take away your office of priest. No, but but bear in mind what I said earlier. Both Briggs and Gurley were ordained to higher offices right. in the Strangite movement, but were never um, required to lay that down. Mm-hmm. I, I, they, were, they were actually honored or, or recognized in the office they had. The Joint Conference of Branches does not vote on a membership. There is no membership. Um, Anyone who can testify that they have had an authoritative baptism can have voice and vote in the conference. Uh, People can come. They can go. uh, We don't own property. Every branch can vote on what it does, what it doesn't do. Individuals can come. Branches can come. And... I was a part of the very first restoration branch. We organized in 1984 here in Independence. Mm. 
Uh, I was silenced in 1982. I participated in what was called a restoration festival. We had 3,000 saints I remember come to Graceland College, and the church was worried. Even though we met at separate times from the general church, we were still active in our local branches. Uh, we were silenced because we participated in a restoration festival. Well, there were no restoration branches. There was nowhere to go. We met in a living room, and we studied and tried to worship the best we could for two years. And after that time, we decided that we felt that there was historical and scriptural basis to form a restoration branch. And so the independence branch was formed, the first branch here in the center place. And for three years, there was no support. We were accused of starting a new church, that we had walked outside our authority. And gradually over time, others began to look at this, and as a result, other branches began to form. And today, it's prolific. There's over 200 restoration branches scattered throughout the world. And we have saints in 23 different countries, as well as here in the United States. And to me, when we talk about the gospel, we look at the joint conference as simply a mechanism to do missionary work. We do not believe we're more the church than any other branch of the church. Uh, some people don't support the conference, and, and I appreciate that. I understand that, and, and I personally don't have an issue with someone who is reticent about wanting to be a part of that. I think it's an individual choice, but I don't believe that where you worship determines whether or not you've had an authoritative baptism. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I accept, and of course I believe there perhaps are baptisms outside the reorganization, but we don't act on those. As I said earlier, we would need the church to have some kind of confirmation because we don't want to cut off our nose to spite our face. We don't want to take a step that would cause division versus unity. Mm -hmm. But I do believe that that we should build those relationships. We should build those among Restoration Branch peoples also. We may not agree on everything. Every branch has a little bit different idea. There's some branches that have a, a penchant for in, entertaining the feast days. There are some branches that uh, push the idea of, of modalism, that they believe there's only one personage in the Godhead. Mm -hmm. There are some that believe that there's a trinity. There's a variety of views, but none of these have been a test of faith or membership in the church. But we might disagree with some of these positions. We might hold views that are different. So Joseph III counseled, walk together in as much as you can be agreed, and I believe that's good counsel for us today. <laughs>